Welcome to the sixth episode of ScoutCast, and in this episode, I interview Paul Leslie, who is the owner of Humboldt Honey Wines, and he is a local beekeeper here in Humboldt County. And so we talk about the global issue of bee colony collapse and how that looks in California, and we also talk about how it is keeping bees up here in Humboldt County. And I went in to his storefront in Eureka, which is called Humboldt Honey Wines, and I got to do uh, a tasting of the mead that he sells. And I apologize, the audio is a little off because I had some technical difficulties with the mic. But the interview is really, really good. And yeah, I'll get started. Can you introduce yourself and tell me what your business is? Uh, my name is Paul Leslie, and I'm the owner of Humboldt Honey Wine Farm in and I guess give me a description of your business. Well, we um, we raise bees um, and we extract the honey and then we make a wine out of it. So awesome! And then how long have you been doing that for? Well, we became licensed as a commercial winery in 2014. Um, I was making mead a little while before that and raising bees for some time before that. Great. And then how did you? come into beekeeping? How, how were you introduced? Actually, I, I got really interested in beekeeping when I was eight years old. Um, cool. Yeah, I was spending the summers uh, in San Jose at my grandmother's house, and she had a huge lot. It's like a almost the size of a city block, and a huge garden, and her neighbor had basically the same. And one day I looked out in the, the big light post that was next to her garage, there was this big mass hanging from it, so I went out to look at it, and I saw that it was just millions of bees. Not millions, but more than I'd ever seen. Yeah. And my grandmother said to go get the neighbor, um, because they were probably his bees. He, he had beehives. And he came over, got on a little step stool with just a tank top and a pair of shorts on. And he stuck his hand <laughs> into this mass of bees, and he just kept pulling his hand out and looking at it. And finally, he closed his hand, and he pushed his fist back into this big, huge mass of bees, and then he just walked away with it because they'd all transferred <laughs> off of the pole onto his arm. And I wow. followed him into his yard, and he just, you know, he told me to open up a box, and I took the lid off, and he just basically dropped the entire swarm into a box, into a new beehive. Yeah. And, you know, eight years old, that's the coolest thing any eight-year-old's ever seen in his life. So I spent the rest of the summer running around catching bees with my bare hand, <laughs> trying to get all the other bees to climb on. <laughs> Not knowing that he had actually found the queen and was very gently cutting oh. the queen in his hand. And that's why they all gathered on him. Wow. Um, so my grandmother spent the summer letting jars of bees that I had trapped uh, out of our bedroom. <laughs> letting them back out into the wild. So that was, my, that was kind of my hook into beekeeping. I've always been interested. I've always researched it. But it wasn't until oh, about 10 or 15 years ago that I actually got into it myself. Very cool. Very cool. And where is your current property that you have the bees on? We're just south of Fortuna. Okay. Um, if you go about a mile and a half out Highway 36, there's a road called River Bar Road that goes out into the valley by the Van Dusen River. Uh -huh. So we have 12 acres um, that goes out to the Van Dusen. We Very grow cool. sunflowers, lavender, borage, all just different things that, that will add an interesting flavor to our honey. Okay. Very cool. And then, so for my project, we are trying to have community members define what, what they think environment is. 
So do you want to describe either your work environment or I guess just what the word environment brings to mind when you hear that? Wow. Um, it's a big question. So you can, you have a lot of freedom with this one. There's no wrong answer? <laughs> no, definitely. Okay, good. <laughs> to me, our environment is every living thing around us creating a place for every other living thing around us, uh, including ourselves. And I think everybody, everything has a place in that environment. I guess that's the wrong way to put it, but... No, this is great. <laughs> um, so for me, it's, it's really about... For me, nature is about balance. It's a huge mm -hmm. uh, thing about balance. And when things become imbalanced, that's when we see really bad things happen. Catastrophic things. We lose species or one species uh, overpopulates and destroys the habitat for others. Um, but yeah, that's that's my idea of what the environment is. That was perfect. That was great. <laughs> Thank you. Can you now describe the environment in which your bees live in? Um, well, you know, keep in mind that the uh, European honeybee, Apis milkberry, is not an indigenous species. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it, it's definitely, you know, when people talk about losing bees to colony collapse disorder, well, you know, they weren't intended to be here in the first place. Mm. But it's about keeping things, like I said, balanced. Mm -hmm. And where we're raising our bees, we feel like it's it's a good balance. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of native plants that benefit from the honeybees, the pollination. Um, and then there's some crops that the uh, neighboring farmers are growing that my honeybees benefit. So I think that uh, even though they are technically an invasive species, I do believe that, that there's a benefit to others as well as yeah. just to the natural world Definitely. having been here. Oh, that's really interesting. I guess I was under the assumption that they were from like California no. or something. Okay, can you describe that? Just because I'm just so, curious about that. Apis milliferi is the, the genus and species name for the European honeybee. Okay. And uh, the European honeybee is the most commonly used bee for producing honey in the United States and in Europe because okay. uh, they produce large colonies by comparison to other some other bees, okay. and they're fairly docile, with the exception of the Africanized bees, which that was a genetic experiment that got loose, and now we're we're seeing the consequences of that. But your average European honeybee, there's different there, even within the European honeybee, there's different strains, and the different strains have different um, qualities. Uh, so, like the Italian honeybee is probably the most docile, but they're not necessarily the most industrious. Um, where they come from in, in and around Italy, there's a lot of, there are long summers, long growing seasons, very few predators. So they, genetically, they're more predisposed to be calm, um, easy to work with, not very aggressive at all. Uh, but because they have such a long growing season and such a short winter, my personal opinion is, is they're not as industrious as other breeds because they don't have to store as much honey. Mm, okay. When you look at the Russian honeybee, oh, the, the, the Italian honeybee is also, it's kind of identifiable because it's the lightest colored bee. It's okay. very light yellow, light striping, you know, it's, it's more of a bright color. 
the Russian um, honeybee, European honeybee, is very dark. Um, they live in an environment where the growing season is much shorter, the winters are much longer, and there's a lot more predators. You know, you've got yeah. bears, wolverines, sables, skunks, everything. So consequently, they're much more industrious, but they're also more aggressive. Now, when I say aggressive, I'm not talking to the extent of the Africanized honeybees, where they're just going to come piling out of the hive and swarm you. But where the Italian honeybees, I can work in a t-shirt, a pair of shorts, and do stuff with them all day long. The Russian honeybees that I have, I'm more likely to put on a, a bee suit and move a lot slower. They're okay. calm, but they don't take very much to upset them. And once they get upset, you know, you're going to get stung. Got it. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Thank and you. There's, there's, there's Irish, there's Caucasian, there's the Yugoslavian. I mean, wow. there's just... I have a lot to learn. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot awesome. of different varieties. And they all have, they all have their pros and cons. All right, so can you, I guess, describe what bee colony collapse means to you? You kind of touched on that a little bit, but I guess if you were explaining to a college student who had never heard of it before, just a brief mm -hmm. overview. Well, it, it's basically um, a situation where the colony starts losing numbers faster than it can replace them, um, and it it's caused by a not one specific thing, but a, a compounding of stresses on the bees. And what's happening is, is with those compounded stresses, and we can talk about those in a second, sure. it starts affecting the bees' ability to relocate or navigate back to the hive. Bees fly or, or move about with a really developed sense of relocation, like a homing pigeon. They can go right back to the exact same spot. The problem is, is when they get three miles out in the field and they lost that ability because these compounded stresses that are affecting their nervous system, they don't come back. And you know, most of the pollination services that are experiencing these, it's in the spring when mm -hmm. things are just starting to bloom. So it might be 50, 60, 70 degrees during the day, but it's dropping into the low 40s at night. This is a time when the population in the hive should be expanding at a pretty predictable rate. Um, and so if a few bees don't come back, there's more bees being hatched out. With a colony collapse disorder, a lot of bees aren't coming back. And so the number of bees being lost in the field, you know, they stay out in the field overnight, the cold kills them. Mm -hmm. The numbers start taking an effect on the the hive's ability to keep the eggs warm because the queen is trying to lay thousands of eggs yeah. to really build up the size of this colony very quickly. The problem is she's building it up so fast that there's not enough bees to keep it warm. Okay. And so once the brood chills and the, the eggs and the larvae, once they can't be kept warm, they die. And then the next generation isn't hatching out. So eventually bees are leaving and they're not coming back. And so the numbers in the hive just drop to a point um, where they can't sustain themselves and the hive dies. Okay, and so what are the com you said compounded stressors? Right. Okay. So the way I the way the the analogy that I use is um, you know you're driving home from work one day and you get a flat tire. That's a form of stress. Yeah. But you can deal with that. Most yeah. people can deal with a flat tire. It's no big deal. Some people lose it, but most people <laughs> call AAA or get out and fix it yourself. But 
if you've got a flat tire and then you got a phone call that your dog just got hit by a car and your mom just died in a house fire and your house is burned down and your husband just left you, those are compounding stresses that can really drive your immune system down. Yeah, okay. Um, high blood pressure, all these different things. You know, people, re everybody reacts differently from stress, but you do have a physiological reaction to Definitely. stress. And so when all of those stresses are put on you and tomorrow those same stresses are going to get put on you again. And a new set of stresses is going to put on you tomorrow. Eventually, physically, health-wise, you're going to break down. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. It just manifests itself in different ways. And affecting the bee's ability to find their way home is probably the most common in that wow. situation. Now, taking that into account, the different stresses that the bees are facing include constantly being moved, you know, when, okay. a, when a person is in the pollination service, and please don't take this as me saying anything negative about the people that sure. do different jobs, because it, that's, that's not what I'm doing. Everybody raises bees for a different purpose, and it would be, it would be irresponsible for me to say your purpose is not valid where mine is, so, um, you know, that's not what I'm doing. But pollination services, they have these hives that they start out down in Southern California, or even into Mexico or Arizona. Uh, for the bloom of some fruit and the further south you go the sooner spring hits so maybe they start in February down in Mexico and by May they're all the way up in Washington or even into Canada wow that's and those, such a different climate yeah that's intense they're what they call chasing the bloom so it starts blooming in Southern California and then they're moving those hives yeah. you know 50 okay. to 100 miles every week moving them up further and further and further well bees don't like to be moved you can take the most docile hive of bees you've ever seen. One you can reach in bare hands and play with them, no problem. You take and move that hive 100 feet over and go back into that hive the next day, they're going to be very upset. They don't like to be moved. Well, now you're moving them every week. So there's one form of stress. Different uh, times of the year, different growers use different sprays. Um, they're using pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, all these different and my bees don't get moved. They stay where they're at. So if a farmer nearby uses one of those sprays, my bees are exposed to it. But they're exposed to what I call seasonal dose. People use one kind of spray in the spring, another kind in the summer, another kind in the fall, maybe a different one in the wintertime. So they get exposed to a seasonal dose. But when those bees are being moved, and so instead of the spring lasting for you know, however many months, they're starting the spring weather and being exposed to those sprays very early, and they're continually over and over and over. Every time they get moved, they get exposed to that chemical again. So it's combined seasonal doses. Then it's a common practice among beekeepers to strip the honey out of the hive while they're in pollination mode uh -huh. and feed them sugar water so the bees don't they, they, basically, they're trying to create more room in the hive for more bees, so they remove the honey to okay. get more room for bees. Um, sugar water is not, in my opinion, it's not a great substitute for honey. Um, the pH is wrong. Mm -hmm. Most people are using processed sugar. There's even been some talk about uh, whether it's a cane sugar or a beet sugar. There's there's a hundred different opinions on this, but a lot of beekeepers think that beet sugar is not not good to feed bees. Um, some people are feeding them corn syrup and they think that the corn syrup is a bad thing to be feeding bees. I'm not an expert on it, I just know that 
if bees wanted sugar, they would be chewing on, yeah, you know, sugar cane that stalks and not, <laughs> not bringing in all these different things. Um, bees mix different things, you know, when they're going to all these different flowers, every flower has its own medical benefit, you know, health benefit. And so it's the combination, combination of all those flowers, including the saps and the resins that they use to create propolis, that they coat the cells with, that, you know, infuses into the honey. Those are all things that they're consuming that's what they should be consuming. And then when you're yeah. feeding them sugar water, some people say it runs their metabolism too high, so queens don't live as long. So you have to replace your queens. Well, those are all just different types of stresses that they're putting on the bees. Um, you could say that they're over-managing them. You could say they're not managing them correctly. Um, you know, the pesticide companies want to blame the practices of the beekeeper. The beekeepers want to blame the uh, chemicals in the pesticide company. And in my opinion, they're kind of both to blame. But that's yeah. my opinion. That's a lot going on. I, yeah. I honestly wasn't aware of most of that. My understanding, I guess, with the whole bee colony collapse situation was I did not know that bees were moving. I thought it was specific to each area and they would stay there. And it was just, I've heard of pesticides and that's in my mind what I attached to that issue. But there's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you for explaining. You explained that very well. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. And so how is that seen on a local level, if we're seeing Actually, it? Actually, you know, on a local level, it's really not that much of a problem here. Okay. There's, there are a couple, you know, beekeepers kind of get broken into different categories. Um, there's your commercial beekeepers. There's your giant commercial beekeepers. There's your hobbyist and then there's your backyard beekeeper and a backyard beekeeper might have one or two hives mm -hmm. um, that's how i started out that's how most beekeepers start out okay uh, unless you're born into a family business that has yeah. thousands of hives so your backyard beekeeper might have one or two hives maybe even at the peak five or six hives and they're doing it because they want to pollinate their garden they want to have their own honey bees are just amazing to watch you can, yeah you learn something every time you go out and work with them so those are the backyard. The hobbyists, maybe they have 10 or 20 hives, maybe they got 30 or 40 hives, and they're making honey and they're selling it at the farmer's market or, or whatever they're doing. Um, I'm kind of at the bottom tier of the commercial beekeepers. You know, we run a little over 100 hives, give or take. Um, and we're raising them for a very specific purpose. We're raising them for the honey, we make the wine, but we don't use them for pollination services, so my bees don't get moved around. Mm -hmm. now. I do have some hives in McKinleyville and Bayside and Freshwater and a couple other places, but they're like friends that said, hey, I'd love to have a couple beehives. So I do take hives out there, but it's not, once they're set there, they're there for the year. They're not yeah. getting moved Definitely. constantly. So, but then you have the big commercial beekeepers, and those are the ones that have thousands of hives. They have contracts with the almond orchards, the avocado orchards, the strawberry fields, um, you know, so... They're moving their bees constantly. They're also the, the main source of buying bees. Um, so you can you can actually buy packages of bees that are just bees and a queen, and you have to put them into the hive yourself. There's, it doesn't come with a hive. Um, or you can buy bees that are already in a little mini hive that you can expand. So those are the big commercial beekeepers. We don't really have any big commercial beekeepers okay. in Humboldt County. Okay, that makes we sense. Have a, we have a few smaller 
or larger, small commercial beekeepers that have hives that they do pollination service. Okay. But it's more localized. It's yeah. more Oregon coast valley. You know, maybe mm -hmm. the cranberry bogs up there or whatever. It's not. It's not the moving. You know, a thousand hives on a semi truck. Yeah. Right. Okay. And those are the beekeepers, the commercialized beekeepers that are moving stuff. They're the ones that are that are experiencing Being colony collapse. Okay. Among our community, the varroa mite um, is a much bigger problem. Okay, what is that? Is that a... The varroa mite, it's also called the varroa destructor mite. It's a mite that came out of Asia. Mm -hmm. And it hitches a ride with a bee into the hive. It wants to lay its egg in a cell that has a, a bee larva in it. And so then it grows up, basically, it's a parasite mm -hmm. feeding on them. And they spread certain types of diseases. Um, they're very difficult to get rid of. But in a way, it's the commercialized beekeepers, again, that have created this problem for us. We're going right back to the beginning of what we talked about, it's all about balance. And, you know, parasites have been around forever. Um, and the mite isn't something new. But the bees' ability to manage those mites has been diminished. Kind of like, you know, keeping bears in a cage for so long they forget how to feed themselves. Yeah. Beekeepers discovered this mite was showing up in the U.S. and they came up with all these chemicals to treat for the mites. Chemicals, if, if it kills one bug, it's going to have a negative effect on another bug. But yeah. I can't seem to convince that among some of my beekeeper friends. <laughs> So they treat with chemicals, and it's kind of like thinking on the lines of treating um, a bacteria with a antibacterial, you know, with a with a antibiotic. Antibiotic. Oh, because it kills all the good stuff too. Well, it doesn't just kill all the good stuff, but what it does is it kills most of those mites, but a couple of them survive. Okay. And those mites are now resistant to that spray or chemical mm -hmm. or whatever. And so those mites start breeding, and now we've got a stronger mite. And because we dealt with the mites ourselves, we didn't let the bees deal with it, we've created a weaker bee. So we've genetically, over the last 30 years or so, created a weaker and weaker bee and a stronger and stronger mite. Where in nature, if the mites invaded a colony of bees and those bees didn't have the self-defense mechanism to deal with those mites, those bees would die. Mm -hmm. Sad to say, but that's necessary. That genetic line is not capable of dealing with the mites. This hive over here, or this colony over here, gets infested with mites, and they're able to deal with it. So yeah. they survive. Okay. So in the wild, that colony would continue to reproduce bees of its genetic line that are capable bees. of dealing with the mites. Yeah. But beekeepers, because they've been using sprays and chemicals for so long to control the mites, they don't have bees that are capable of doing it. Uh, University of Purdue, um, they're actually breeding a genetic strain of bees, they call them ankle biters. And these bees know that when the mites show up, they just chew the legs off of them. The problem is almost all bees will find the mites and throw them out of the hive. But then the mites just crawl right back in. Yeah. This ankle biter actually chews the legs off the bees or off the mites before they throw them out so then they can't crawl oh, back in. Wow. So we don't use any chemicals in our apiary, mm -hmm. and 
if a hive or a colony, we, we collect a lot of swarms. That's how we get a lot of our bees. And it, it does create a, a certain degree of genetic diversity. Um, if a certain hive is struggling and can't survive without chemical aids, we let that hive take it, the, we let nature take its course. And that yeah. hive is no longer in the breeding pool mm -hmm. um, for, for our, our, our apiary. So we feel like we're breeding a much stronger bee that can live in our climate and our environment much better, more adapted yeah. to this environment. Because our environment is completely different than the valley. Yeah. The valley is cold in the winter, but it's drier in the winter. We mm -hmm. have that cold wet. So I'm finding the dark colored bees, like the Russians and the yeah. Arnolans, they do, they do better for me. Mm -hmm. They're a little more aggressive, but we learn to live with it. Cool. Wow. Again, awesome. So much good information. And so I guess my question is, since we don't have those big commercial beekeepers, since we don't have like the valley up here and mass amounts of orchards and stuff, are most of like the pro is most of the produce pollinated by bees naturally? Or do we have just smaller situations where the bees are moved to pollinate? We we have well, there's really not there's really not a place in Humboldt County that there's not a beekeeper within okay. a mile okay. or two. Yeah. And bees fly three and a half miles in every direction from their hive to forage. On average, they can go further. Okay. In the desert, they'll go six or seven miles. But mm -hmm. here, three to five miles, three and a half miles is about average. Um, so, you know, like the Arcata Bottoms. I know a couple of beekeepers in the Arcata Bottoms that have anywhere from three hives to 25 hives. Mm -hmm. um, McKinleyville, there's just dozens of beekeepers all over yeah. the middle. So, you know, a lot of the big crops that are grown here are corn, you know, commercially. Yeah. We got corn. Corn is wind pollinated. It doesn't. That's right. The bees do collect pollen from it. Um, but the corn but, doesn't need the but bees. But the corn doesn't okay. need the bees. The fruit trees, yeah. of course, they need it. Um, like apple, for Apples, example? Okay. Yeah, but most of the big apple producers, like Clendenins, if you look, yeah. they've got beehives in their yard. Oh, okay. So, now it doesn't necessarily mean that they're their beehives. There might be another, there might be sure. a beekeeper, but but you notice that those beehives don't go anywhere all year. Yeah, long. they stick yeah. around. Okay. The thing with like the almond orchards, the almonds bloom for a very short period of time, and they don't really produce nectar. They produce pollen for yeah. the bees, but they don't produce a nectar so much that the bees can make a honey out of it. And when you get into an almond orchard, it's literally almonds for as far as the eye can see, you yeah. know. And so they're putting bees. So once those almonds are done blooming, there's really not another food source readily available. Mm -hmm. um, because they, they have undiversified the ecosystem. Yeah. So they've completely lost balance in, in the valley. You go places where you just see miles and miles and miles of almonds or miles and miles and miles of pear trees or plum trees or strawberries or tomatoes. Yeah. That's a single crop that's blooming at a very specific time and then there's then they're killing everything else around it, all the weeds and everything yeah. that the bees would feed on. So it's not a very balanced or diverse situation. So you don't find as many hobbyists, um, small commercial beekeepers that, that just keep bees from making honey and stuff in those areas because you need the diversity. Like in the valley that I'm at, First thing in the spring, we've got all the fruit trees. Everybody's got fruit trees out there. There's yeah. apples, plums, cherries, everything. And then the blackberries start blossoming. The whole time that's going on, you've got wild mustard and scotch broom and coyote brush and poison oak. And then 
in the later in the year, you've got the, the clover starting to come up all over the place. You've got the butter, buttercup or butterscotch or whatever it's called. Um, you've got alfalfa. They do grow corn in my valley, but thankfully they don't spray it with anything, so I'm pretty blessed. Yeah. But there's a much greater diversity for the bees to feed on. So I don't have to feed my bees sugar water, and I don't have to constantly move them to find a new source of food. Yeah, yeah. So. I guess what I was thinking about, too, like, if a human was put in that situation, you know, being moved all the way from Mexico to Washington, given a single thing to eat, we would be unhappy, wouldn't we? And oh, absolutely. Yeah, so it seems almost crazy to me that people are confused to why the bees are leaving the colony. Yeah. Well, they're leaving doing their normal thing. They just can't find their way home. Yeah. You know, and that, that was when bees actually choose to leave a hive, that's called absconding. Oh, okay. That's so, and it happens. Yeah. If the hive gets completely overrun with mites and the brood's not hatching out well, the queen, you know, the, the, the colony will make the decision to leave and yeah. then they'll just fly out and yeah. completely abandon the hive. Oh. But with colony collapse disorder, that's not what's happening. Okay, they're getting confused. Right. Okay, that makes sense with all the compounding factors, right? Correct. Okay, okay. got it. So one last question. Um, so I guess how, as students and young adults, how can we, I guess, contribute to the solution to bee colony collapse? Or what can we do on a local level to support healthy beekeeping? Um, you know, the best thing I tell people is do some research, find out what native plants do or what plants do well in your area that bees like mm -hmm. and just plant a ton of it. That's a great idea. And the first thing I tell people to plant is sunflowers. Oh, that's awesome. Because <laughs> they're, they're really cool to look at. Yeah, they're beautiful. Everybody's impressed when you've got giant sunflowers yeah. in your but sunflowers produce a very nutrient-rich pollen. It's very high in cholesterol. Okay. And for a queen to lay quality eggs over a very long period of time, she has to have a high cholesterol diet. So sunflowers are like top of the food chain. Clover, dandelions, those are all awesome. Borage, lavender, you know, all these different things. Yeah. Um, lavender is a great thing. We, we discovered that, um, you know, like I said, we're treatment-free. So mm -hmm. we don't treat with chemicals. We grow a lot of lavender. I have a couple of hives that are very close to some of our lavender. Those hives have the lowest mite count. Turns out lavender is a great insect repellent. Wow. Mosquitoes, spiders, scorpions, all those fun things. They don't like lavender. Um, so this next spring, we're planting rows of lavender in between all of our beehives. Is it going to be the cure-all? Probably not. Is it going to help them in some way? Well, they love lavender. They're all over it, and it makes a great honey. So I can't be a bad thing. Yeah. If, it, if it knocks down the mite population even just a little bit, then that's worth it. That's a good thing. Yeah. So lavender and sunflower. Those are what's yeah. a plant. All those, right. Those are good, awesome. good things. And leave the dandelions alone. Yeah. <laughs> no picking them. Leave yeah, it for the leave bees. The, leave it for the bees. That's usually the first major food source in the spring is the dandelions. Oh, okay, because there's such an abundance. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so just to finish up, can you tell people where they can find your honey wine? So you can find our honey wine in, here at our winery, 723 3rd Street, Eureka. Um, you can get it at both of the North Coast co-ops, um, Eureka National Foods in McKinleyville, not in Eureka, uh, Wild Berries, and all the Murphy's Markets.
Awesome. And do you sell honey as well or just the honey wine? Occasionally we sell honey. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome.